everyone. We're glad you're here. I'm going to read Psalms 18, 1 through 3. The message for him says, I love you, God, for... I love you, God. You make me strong. God is bedrock. I know the castle of which in which I live my rescuing warrior. I sing to God and find myself safe. Thank you, Josh. Well, good morning and welcome to Regeneration. Um, If it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, We just want you to know that you are expected, that we're glad that you're here. Um, On the back table on your way out is a mug, so we'd love to give that to you as our gift for just visiting. Um, And if uh, throughout the morning you decide you'd like to know a little bit more about what's going on here at Regen, there's also a card that says hey on it. And if you fill that out with your email address, we'll send you our uh, weekly emails just so you can kind of keep up with what's going on. Um, If you have been coming to Regen and haven't filled that out, just want to stress again, make sure you fill that out. That's the best way to find out what's happening going forward, especially as we kind of change how our announcements work. Um, But here at Regen, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. So we hope this morning that that's what you experience, that you are able to just experience his love and his grace in the midst of everything that we say and do. And then I just have a few announcements for you. Our first is going to be our check-ins. So if you're on Facebook and you want to check in and use the hashtag RegenGives, Our check-ins this month go to help a church plant in Kent that's reaching um, college students and grad students and international students called H2O Church. So every time you check in, it generates a donation to them. And then next Sunday, October 7th, is just going to be a big Sunday. It's our sweatpants Sunday, so we say that that it's our comfiest Sunday of the year. So you can wear a pair of sweatpants and then also bring a kid-sized pair. We'll donate them to McGuffey, K-8, and Warren. So that's next Sunday. It's also going to be Regen's, um, I always forget this, fourth birthday, honey? Fourth birthday. And then we're also doing a Discover event. So we're going to be talking about people of peace, um, which is kind of a weird term. But what people of peace means is kind of looking for the people in your life where God is already at work in their life. And how do you kind of come alongside that? Um, It's just a new way to share your faith or a different way to share your faith that maybe is a little less um, intrusive than like having to go door to door or something like that. So if you're interested in coming for that, that'll be next Sunday right after the service. Bring a dish to share. We're going to kind of do an old-fashioned potluck. Um, for those of you who grew up in church, so we'll all eat together and and do that as well. Um, And then we've been talking about this for the last three weeks. Um, We're moving on to a new sermon series, but we've been talking about circles, which is just about living life together, uh, eating together, studying the Word of God together, um, just building a community and friendship together. And so those are tonight is the student circle at 6 p.m. at our house Um, Tuesday night at 6.30 is the Cortland Circle circle with the Bannings and the Bylers. And Wednesday night is the Howland Circle with the Mangeries, the Coopers, and the Brits. So the addresses for those are all in the programs, or you can see me after if you need any more information about that. So I'm going to have Aaron come up and pray for our offering. 
Hey, we're going to pass around these buckets in a minute, but first, let's pray. Um, God, thank you so much just for the opportunity to be here today. Um, thank you for this time and this space to put everything else aside and to reach towards you and worship um, and through teaching and through your word. Um, and God, we just ask that as we do that, that you would reach back towards us um, that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear today um, so that we can grow to be in every part of the mature body that you want us to be. Um, we ask that as we mirror your generosity with ours, that you would just bless um, not only our offering, but just our, our time here today. Amen. God, we are singing about how we're welcoming you into this place, but the reality is it's your welcome that brings us here. It is your welcome to us. The way that you see us and love us, how you offer us your affection, your presence and your nearness, God, that's who you are. That's who you are. You're our Father. And so, Dad, we turn our attention to you today, and you're worthy of that. Uh, you do that, but we don't do it out of a sense of duty. We do it out of a sense of delight because we are your children. Um, and so help us to hear your voice this morning, where the word of God is explained, his voice is heard. And so speak to us today, Father. We're ready. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, howdy. Welcome to Regen. Uh, my name's Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here and uh, super thankful for you. Um, let me say one thing uh, before we go anywhere. I want to leave that there because that passage came up randomly last service and I could not find it. Um, one thing really quick. Um, um, I have called... Oh, kids can go back. Sorry. They're like looking at me. Um, We've called a family meeting. I've called a family meeting for Thursday at 6.45 p.m. Um, if you are somebody that has said to me, I really love Regen, uh, if you're somebody that considers this to be your home, be here. Um, and when we publish this event online, um, actually, a couple curious things happened. First of all, like two people that I've never even seen before said they're interested in the event. And I was like, well, I hope you don't come because that's going to not exactly be what we want to lead with. But another thing was um, somebody said, I feel like I'm in trouble um, because there was kind of some stern language to that. Um, and my response to that was good. I'm glad. Um, the fact that I'm using a tone of voice um, to call you to something that I've never called you to before, I, I hope indicates um, why you need to be there. Um, I'm not going anywhere that I know of unless something changes before Thursday. So some people know that we're a Methodist, we're connected to Methodists, and that means I get moved. I'm not going anywhere but we need to have a, an honest conversation as a spiritual family. So um, some of you have emailed and said that you can't be here. Um, for those that do that, for those that let me know, um, I will provide a recording of that conversation, but only if you let me know. So if you notice, the gateway into understanding what's happening at this is pretty narrow, right? So trying to increase the challenge a little bit because Jesus does that. Jesus operates on a spectrum from invitation to challenge and... Um, we're just going to notch that challenge up a little bit. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 9. John 9. If you've got a phone, just Google John 9. If you want to use one of those paperback Bibles around you, the page number is 644. We're, in the, we're starting a new series today. So love the 330. 
Um, this is a series that's backed by popular demand. We did it last year for the first time. And church, what is the 330? Yes, thank you. It is our area code. Some people last year were like, is that a Bible verse? No, it is, it is where you live, my friend. Uh, welcome to it. And um, last year, we kind of looked generally at like, what does it just mean to be the people of Jesus and have a heart of service toward, the, toward our area and toward the city that God's called us to be in? Um, this time around, we're going to spend three weeks drilling down into what we might call the spiritual strongholds that most plague our community, uh, the Mahoning Valley, Northeast Ohio generally. So addiction, poverty, and racism. Um, this week is addiction, and then I think next week will be poverty, and the last week will be racism because that's the one that makes me most nervous. So always save the hardest work for last is what I would think, right? So um, we're going to look at this. Look at John chapter 9. It says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of one of his own sins or his parents' sins? Jesus says, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins, or in other words, neither. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us, by the one who sent us, the night is coming, then no one can work, but while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. And then verse 6 goes on, he heals the guy, some other stuff happens. Jesus is working with his disciples, and they stumble upon a tragedy. It's a man who has been blind from birth, and when we witness something tragic, we try to construct an explanation. When something bad happens, when we see something that we know is wrong, we try to construct we try to construct an explanation, and if we can't construct an explanation, we will look for someone to blame. And so the disciples stumble upon this guy, and they too look for an explanation. And it's an explanation colored by their cultural assumptions. It's colored by um, their, their being in this world of Scripture. And so they ask this question, is this man blind because of his sins, or maybe because of his parents' sins. This was a common belief at the time of Jesus because of biblical passages, say, for example, like Exodus 34, that says the sins of the father will be visited on the sons to the third and the fourth generation. And, and so understand this, when the disciples ask about this blind man being blind from birth, they think that they are responding and explaining what is happening in biblical terms in spiritual terms. And what's interesting about this is even though they theologicalize, I think that's a word, and spiritualize this by using the language of sin, Jesus' response is to first brush away their cultural assumption. Do you notice how he does this? He says it was neither his sin nor the sins of his parents. He points away from the immediate problem and tries to lift the disciples' eyes beyond what they see to what they can't see, to what we might call a redemptive kingdom power at work, which is why Jesus says, this happened, this man was born blind, this happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. He points to what God could or might or is doing in the background, all of this, let's change the language for a minute. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who was addicted to heroin. Rabbi, the disciples asked him, why is this man an addict? Was he born this way? Was it because of his own sins 
or maybe the sins of his parents. Through August of this year, there have been 477 hospital encounter overdoses. Hospital encounter is fancy terminology for the ones that we know about, okay? 36 of these overdoses have been fatal. Uh, This number is significantly lower than it has been in years past with uh, 135 uh, drug-related deaths overdoses in 2017 and 107 in 2016. The zip codes with the highest rates of overdose are in Niles, in Warren or Champion, which is the 44483. Technically, our church is, I don't know who drew zip codes in Trumbull County. I think it was like a three-year-old with a crayon because we're in 44481. My house is 30 seconds that way, and that's 44483. So, and most of Champion is that. 44484 is Warren and Howland, and 44485 is right smack where Grace Campus is located on the northwest side. 62% of the overdoses this year were experienced by people ages 20 to 40, and another 25% were in their 40s and 50s. And it's true that there's a lot of media attention given to things like heroin, And there's a lot of government money given to things like heroin. But a couple things to note. First of all, the vast majority of the overdoses that happened so far this year have been related not to opiates or opioids like like heroin, but to cocaine, fentanyl, or both. And when we do one-day snapshots, and by we, I mean I'm part of a task force with the Mental Health and Recovery Board, have been for a number of years now. Um, When we do one-day snapshots of treatment centers in and around Northeast Ohio, usually about 60% of people coming in for treatment are coming in with alcohol use disorder. Usually only one out of 10, I think, if I'm remembering in this meeting. One out of 10 are for another substance. Before we go any further, I think it's important to note how a person ends up in addiction, maybe naming some of our cultural beliefs, our cultural assumptions. Usually a person ends up in, in addiction after a workplace accident or, an athle- or a school athletics-related accident. The fastest-growing population of addicts in the country are high school students who are injured on the ball field. Uh, They're prescribed in workplace and in athletic scenarios. They're prescribed a painkiller. The painkiller prescription runs out and they are hooked on those pills. Uh, A pill is about 50 bucks on the street. A hit of heroin is usually less than 10 and does about the same thing. And so it's, this is usually kind of how people fall into it. It is not necessarily a character flaw. We'll talk about that in a second. It is not necessarily even always a flaw in upbringing. Some of the, some of the ways that people are getting addicted are now um, due to cesarean sections and often dental work. Dentists over-prescribe opioids more than any other kind of practicing medical professional. You'll get your tonsils out and you'll get three refills of oxycodone. What? What? That's not your dentist. Not, but I mean, Yes. So the disciples look at what's happening and they use their cultural assumptions. So what are our cultural assumptions? Our cultural assumptions about addiction and recovery are not so much based in the theological or the spiritual, but in, the, in, in these American ideals of family and willpower. So our assumption generally is that people, people who, who, who are in addiction uh, have a character flaw, that there is something uh, wrong with them, or if not with them than in the way they were raised. Remember, they say, Jesus, was this man blind because of his own sins or the sins of his parents? So maybe it's not all that different at all. 
And so we see these people dealing with addiction and falling into it, and we assume that they should just be able to choose not to. We assume that they should just be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to kick the addiction. As a side note, there's a lot of research that's showing that if you were addicted to something and kicked it without treatment, you actually weren't addicted at all. You were just dependent, that there was a difference. What we need to change in our thinking, well, we just basically need to update it with the latest kind of thinking. In 1956, the American Medical Association designated addiction as a disease. So for over 60 years, addiction has not been a matter of choice or willpower. It's been a matter of disease. Instead of it being about family upbringings, about a disease. Listen, uh, we talk about people with addiction like they have a character flaw, but that's not how we talk about people with diabetes. People with heart disease and cancer, we don't assume that they have a character flaw. We assume that there is something else at work. We assume that there are behavioral, environmental, biological factors. That's what, that's what defines a disease. A disease is defined uh, by, by biological, environmental, uh, and behavioral factors. So a person who has heart disease and a person dealing with an addiction have this in common. They both experience an abnormal condition to be present, which causes discomfort, dysfunction, or distress to the afflicted individual. Okay? A person with, with diabetes or cancer or heart disease and a person with an addiction have this in common. They experience a chemical or biological issue that is primary, it is progressive, it is chronic, and if left untreated will lead to death. This is why we've come to see addiction less in the realm of of willpower and choice and more in in the treatment of a disease. And and let me be clear about something. Choice is involved. Unless it's like a 16-year-old girl kidnapped and forced into sex trafficking, nobody is ramming heroin down somebody's veins. Nobody is forcing anybody to take marijuana, which, by the way, is just as addictive as any other substance out there, and I will fight you on that until I die. Um, Nobody is forcing anybody to do LSD. They make a choice. They choose to try it once, they choose to try it 20 times, they can even choose to try it 200 times and they may not get addicted. Same thing with alcohol, by the way. You can have one glass of wine, a person can have 20,000 glasses of wine and never get addicted. And yet there are other people who get addicted. So what we're saying is there was a choice at first. There was a choice to use that started this out. But over time, with repeated usage, choice went away and compulsive behavior took over. Choice went away and compulsive behavior took over. And in fact, there are biological and environmental factors that lead to every person in the sound of my voice having what we would call addiction vulnerability. By the way, there are a couple mental health professionals in the room. Josh is one of them. And I'm kind of looking at him. I'm like hoping like, I think I did a lot of research on this, but I could be wrong. And you can talk to him about that after. Um, Addiction vulnerability. Addiction vulnerability has to do with biological. And Kate, we've got two counselors in the room. No pressure. Okay. And Josh is a social worker, not Josh, Jairus is a social worker. I'm getting, okay. Okay, I shouldn't have brought that up because now I'm nervous. All right. All right. So this idea of addiction vulnerability is almost this idea that there is a genetic predisposition and threshold for addiction. So two people can can drink 2,000 drinks. Two people can try weed 2,000 times. Two people can do heroin 2,000 times. But biological and environmental factors lower that threshold for some people, which means all of us have a threshold that could land us in addiction. It's just that we've not hit our threshold yet. And often because of environmental factors and other genetic ones, we've just ne- we just may never hit it. We just may never hit it. 
What most affects this threshold where we could eventually hit over the course of our life and become addicted is experiences of childhood trauma. Experiences of childhood trauma. About two-thirds of people who are addicted have experienced some type of physical or sexual trauma in childhood. And even if it's not physical or sexual trauma, uh, trauma, childhood trauma can be more than just abuse. It can include neglect and the loss of a parent and witnessing domestic or physical violence. It could be having a family that suffers from a mental illness. All of these things create, bio, create environmental factors that when combined with our genetics and biological factors can cause our addiction vulnerability to be lower than others. What, what I'm trying to get at here is um, we... All of us know somebody who is especially at risk of addiction. And either they've hit that threshold or they haven't yet. Either they've hit that threshold or they haven't yet. And all of us have within us the potential, we have the vulnerability to becoming addicted to a substance, especially when we look at some genetics and especially when we look at the experiences of childhood trauma. So let me bring you up for air because I'm not a science teacher. I'm doing the best with what I got. But let me tell you this. First of all, we want to talk about science because uh, the number one thing that turns millennials off about church is that we are unscientific, that evangelicalism has within it an unscientific bent, um, which is wrong. Uh, the reformers taught that all truth was God's truth, such that, such that uh, if, if psychology finds something that we believe true to be true, that truth belonged to Jesus, not to psychology. And so if, if science is if social sciences, if the mental health field is point, if the medical field is pointing to realities about addiction and substance abuse, we can't just say, pray it away and it'll go away, okay? We can't just pull up our Jesus bootstraps and get there any faster. And we're talking about loving the 330, and, and I find, I find within our culture, just in this little corner of the world, this obsession with talking about how good things used to be. Um, our parents do this, and if you're over 40 in the room, you do this all the time. And, and it was my wife, who's from South Dakota, and our children's uh, intern, Kat, from, from uh, Michigan, who pointed out that this is the only place in the country, first of all, where somebody will ask you, which school did you go to? And they don't mean college, they mean high school. Okay, because that tells you, oh, you went to Lakeview, I now know things about your life. You went to Howland, I know things about life. You went to Champion, I know these things about your life. It's also the only place that when we get together, people just talk endlessly, not about what's going on now, but what's going on then. And when we do talk about what's going on now, it is always framed in the negative. It is always framed in the negative. Um, so why are we talking about this? Because to love the 330 for such a time as this means to understand these things. It means to have a grasp on these things, number one. Um, another thing is, I have no personal experience with substance abuse in my past. Uh, nobody in my family has any particular ongoing substance abuse problem. Um, this leads a lot of people to ask why I personally spend a great deal of time trying to understand substance abuse. Um, here's, here's why we care. Here's why... This is why I at least read and research. This is why I attend monthly meetings at the Mental Health and Recovery Board. This is why we started this thing called Stories to Tell as a community with hopes to kind of launching something more for us to be intentional about addiction and recovery in our community. Um, here's why I care, because I am alive and I am a follower of Jesus at the very same time. Because I am alive and I am a follower of Jesus at the very same time. Here's, here's what's interesting about our church. We, we, we are not a social issues church. 
So I am not today, for example, preaching about women after the Kavanaugh hearing, right? So we're not, we're not usually governed by what's going on in the news. We're usually governed by the text. Um, however, if we're going to be planted as a family on mission in this community for right now, it would be wise to understand what is happening right now in this place. I care about addiction and recovery, and we're, we're, we're growing a culture where we care about that as a church because we are alive and we are followers of Jesus at the same time. If, if we had a problem where houses were regularly burning down across our community, if we had a problem where houses on a regular basis were catching fire, I would learn how to extinguish fires. But there aren't houses catching fire, there are people shooting up. And we can, we can, so we want to become familiar with and use good language for that. And if you need another reason, and this is where we're really going to get biblical for a minute, as a follower of Jesus, as a, as a son of the Father, as a participant in his kingdom, as someone who has been saved by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, I can't help but have compassion for people in addiction and who want out. I can't help but have compassion for people who are trapped in addiction and don't really care to get out or not because I am a sinner saved by grace. I know what it is to be captive. I know what it is to be trapped. And I know what it is to be set free. And I know what it is to be in the position of freedom and to find captivity still very alluring. One of my arguments this morning is that the people of Jesus, because of the very nature of the gospel, the very nature of who Jesus is and what he's done, are more easily put in touch with compassion for people uh, uh, that are in addiction and recovery than other people are. That there's something inherent about our story. So go, if you've got a Bible, go to Romans 6. We're going to look at Romans 6, 7, and 8 really briefly. Romans 6, 7, and 8. The book of Romans is kind of Paul's big unpacking of what the gospel means. It's very detailed because in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to people that he's never met. So the book of Romans is the longest because Paul's trying to kind of give his calling card and like any good preacher has a lot of words. And Romans 6, 7, and 8, which is smack dab in the middle of the book, is Paul unpacking kind of what happens behind the scenes as Jesus is crucified, buried, and, ri- and rises again. He's pointing to the spiritual realities of this. And so in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 in particular, Paul says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. He says, we are no longer slaves to sin, which means, by the way, there was a time prior to the resurrection that we were slaves to sin, that we, by compulsion, could only do what was wrong. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. What Paul is unpacking, really in all of the letters he writes, is this concept of union with Christ. That in faith, we are not just kind of saved, but we are made one with Jesus, such that his whole life becomes our life, our life becomes his life. We share these things. And Paul's point is that when Christ was crucified and died and buried, we also, by faith, those who claim his name, have died and been buried to the power of sin. It, it's, its power is broken over us. Its power is broken over us. It, it's useless. It's weak. And that's why Paul in Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. None. Why? Because you belong to him. 
And because we belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. There, there is this objective reality where sin is no longer our master. These things that we do and think, and if you're uncomfortable with the word sin, get over it. Um, because the Bible's not afraid of using it and neither is Jesus. And so, and, and, and so we have this sin that objectively we have been set free from. Objectively, we are no longer condemned in God's sight for the ways that we live outside the boundaries. And yet, this is his argument, Dan, if you go to the next one with Romans 7 in it, the real issue is that still, even though objectively we have been set free by the blood of Jesus, objectively, subjectively, we still have this inner experience uh, of, of wrestling with sin, of this sin that even though it is dead, even though it is canceled, we kind of keep going back to it. We, we keep wrestling with it. And so even though we have been objectively set free, even though, like friends, if you are laboring under any kind of weight of sin, if you are laboring under this behavior that you see in yourself, this thought pattern uh, that you see in yourself, that you just do not like, like the good news is that you have been set free from that power. But the reality is the spiritual life of walking with Jesus is this back and forth tug of war wrestling match with what Paul would call our old nature or our flesh and our new nature. And again, this is good news that if you are someone who walks with Jesus and sees inside yourself some sin that you are wrestling to the ground, you are in good company. As a side note, if you are somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but nothing of what I am saying is stirring up anything in you, why are you here? There are so many more ways to enjoy a Sunday morning. And I'm not talking about, by the way, this Christian light, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but. No, I'm talking about like a blood, sweat, and tears, awareness and wrestling with parts of me that are not part of the way that God wants. And here's the reality. Even as I wrestle with that, there is no condemnation. There is no guilt. There is no shame. So I am set free not to kind of work through this issue because I have to or I should or I'm shamed there. I'm set free because freedom is really, really good. Thank you. And, 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 and so we continue to step into this. If you are wrestling with this, you are in good company. And my, my claim this morning is that because we know what it's like to be free, but still feel some of the weight of bondage, when we see people in bondage, compassion should be the first thing that rises up within us. So we see these like pictures, Northeast Ohio got famous on the national news like a couple years ago and like this image of like two people overdosed in the front seat with a kid in the back, like went national news, all this kind of stuff. First of all, people were commenting on that, the worst, ugliest, nastiest things about these people, which is a character flaw mentality, right? Number one. And, and I think Christians see this, followers of Jesus see this and confusion rises up, anger rises up, uh, even some like disdain, even some disgust, some wanting to put some distance between us to find blame. If that's what rises up inside of us when we see this, what God wants to do this morning is replace that disgust and that disdain and that distance and that you and get that away with a compassion that says, I want to move toward these people because that's what Jesus does. Jesus does not honor the disciples' cultural assumption and says, you know what, you're right, it probably was that guy's sin. 
You know, he doesn't look at, a dick, at addicts and say, oh, you know what, it probably was that, that bad upbringing. Maybe if they just went to counseling some more and then Josh and Kate could really be making a living and on we go. No, really what, what Jesus does is he brushes aside those cultural assumptions and he goes up to this person and he touches him. He touches him. What Paul wants us to get at in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is, that, is this compassion because we know what it's like to be in bondage. We know what it's like to be set free, which is why we could all say or should all be able to say clearly, my name is Kyle, I am a sinner saved by grace, and I am in recovery from needing to be in control. My name is Kyle, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I am in recovery from needing to control how people think of me needing to control how people perceive me. Because we, as the people of Jesus, should know so clearly our it, that thing that fills in the blank, we should be the people most free, most able to move toward people in addiction, most, most free to move people, un, like straining under the weight of captivity to this with good news. I think Jesus' response in John chapter nine is so interesting because he says to them, it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin. He doesn't care about cultural assumptions. He says, this happened so that the power of God could be seen him. He says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Instead of trying to locate blame or an explanation for this man's blindness, he doesn't, he doesn't put him on a couch to talk to him about his upbringing. He doesn't put him on a, his parents on a couch to talk about how they raised him or their sins and their past. He just heals it. He engages in a kingdom redemptive dynamic and he says, to him, he simply says, this happened so that the power of God could be seen through him. And theology nerds, let's set aside language of predestination for a moment and just simply look at that when Jesus saw this man born blind, he didn't see his sin or his parents' sin. He saw potential for the kingdom of God to break through in this person's life. He saw a story that wasn't done being written. He saw new chapters and new redemption. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so Jesus heals him, which means if you or someone you know are dealing with addiction, like the good news this morning is that this happens so that the, like, the power of God can still be demonstrated in this person's life. I don't like the language of like, so that. It sounds like God made the kid blind so that Jesus could do this. A better translation would say, uh, it, it ha this is an occasion for the power of God to be seen in him. The people that you know that are in addiction are simply stories waiting to be finished. And Jesus's invitation for you this morning is to join him in compassion and then to join him in moving near with good boundaries moving near from a healthy place, moving near without enabling, moving near people in your life and in mine and in our circles who are dealing with addiction. Here's what's so interesting. Jesus says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us, which feels like a non sequitur in the text. We're not talking about tasks, Jesus. I'm trying to figure out why this guy is blind. So Jesus says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us. So here's what I'm going to go ahead and do. I'm going to heal this guy. Does it not, wouldn't it make you think as a disciple standing there that Jesus is probably also inviting me to join him in this work? And he's asking me to join him with urgency. 
I am so tired of just being mamby-pamby and milk toast about the call of Jesus on our lives. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of it in myself. I'm so tired of the routine. I'm so tired of just walking, walking from church thing to church thing to church thing as if it doesn't matter. When Jesus says there is a time when light will be gone and we will not be able to work anymore, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. So if the game is still being played, we might as well play. But look at my schedule, but I've got this going on and I need to do this. No. Either the kingdom is real Either this is breaking in or it's not. This is, by the way, the background of this is I am done treating Christians like they're not Christians when they tell me they're Christians. I'm just done doing it. I'm done not holding people to their expressed values. I'm done not calling you to something. If you don't know Jesus, explore and wait and process and we will be so invitational. But if you know Jesus, we don't got time anymore. This is live ammo. This is real. Jesus says the night is coming and no one can work. If you look over at Luke chapter 2, what is the work? Or Luke chapter 4. We went back and forth about this last service. Uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to Nazareth as his hometown and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Listen, the time of the Lord's favor has come. It will not always be that time. And so we had better set ourselves to the good work of proclaiming captives set free, of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, because in a minute, it's all going to go back in the box. In a minute, we're all going to be 90 years old, and it's going to be done. So here's what I want you to do today. So we're trying to build a culture of revelation and response. That's what disciples do. They don't just come to church, feel the tinglys, and go home, church. They do something, okay? So um, here's, here's what I'm looking. To, uh, we have this response time built in. So if, uh, if this makes you uncomfortable, get over it or find another church that makes you comfortable. Um, what I want you to do is take some time to respond to God in this moment. And... Um, the band is going to play for a little bit. Um, what am I asking you to do today? What I'm asking you to do is replace disdain and disgust with compassion. What I'm asking you to do today is, um, is evaluate how do my values and the way I spend my time reflect on the fact that the sun is setting and there's only a limited amount of time. Um, so you can use the back of the bulletin. There's some kind of journaling space there. Um, you can use uh, your own journal. You can just pray, and then Julia will lead us from there. Jesus does not find brokenness intimidating because he was broken for us so that we might find wholeness. Jesus pours himself out and reminds us how available he is to us. At Regen, we come forward to the table every week because it's his table and we know that we need him. And so um, someone will rip off a piece of the bread, you'll dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good is what we say. And Christ invites anybody with a pulse to this table, anybody with a pulse. 
Um, so uh, Beardless Jerris and Steph um, uh, and Aaron, could you help me out, please? So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that they might nourish us to being your body for the people of this world who need you. Thank you for your favor. Amen. Table is open. Jesus excels at raising the broken to life, so may you experience the power of the life-giving spirit who has set you free from the law of sin and death. Um, Love you so much. Uh, Hope to see you Thursday, and if not, see you Sunday. Peace.